Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. Conan by Robert E. Howard. Episode 19. Jules Aguachler. Part 2 of 2. Chapter 3 Conan wheeled supplely, sweeping the shadows with a fiercely questing stare. There was no sign of the murdered man's body. Only yonder the tall, lush grass was trampled and broken down, and the sward was dabbled darkly and wetly. Conan stood scarcely breathing as he strained his ears into the silence. The trees and bushes with their great pallid blossoms stood dark, still and sinister, etched against the deepening dusk. Primitive fears whispered at the back of Conan's mind. Was this the work of the priests of Keshen? If so, where were they? Was it Zarjabar after all who had struck the gong? Again there rose the memory of Bityakin and his mysterious servants. Bityakin was dead, shriveled to a hulk of wrinkled leather and bound in his hollowed crypt to greet the rising sun forever, but the servants of Bityakin were unaccounted for. There was no proof they had ever left the valley. Conan thought of the girl, Eurela, alone and unguarded in that great shadowy palace. He wheeled and ran back down the shadowed avenue, and he ran as a suspicious panther runs, poised even in full stride to whirl right or left and strike death blows. The palace loomed through the trees, and he saw something else, the glow of fire reflecting redly from the polished marble. He melted into the bushes that lined the broken street, glided through the dense growth, and reached the edge of the open space before the portico. Voices reached him. Torches bobbed and their flare shone on glossy ebon shoulders. The priests of Keshen had come. They had not advanced up the wide, overgrown avenue as Zajay Bar had expected them to do. Obviously there was more than one secret way into the valley of Alkminen. They were filing up the broad marble steps, holding their torches high. He saw Gorolga at the head of the parade, a profile chiseled out of copper, etched in the torch glare. The rest were acolytes, giant black men from whose skins the torches struck highlights. At the end of the procession, there stalked a huge negro with an unusually wicked cast of countenance, at the sight of whom Conan scowled. That was Gwarunga, whom Murila had named as the man who had revealed the secret of the pool entrance to Zajebar. Conan wondered how deeply the man was in the intrigues of the Stygian. He hurried toward the portico, circling the open space to keep in the fringing shadows. They left no one to guard the entrance. The torches streamed steadily down the long dark hall. Before they reached the double-valve door at the other end, Conan had mounted the outer steps and was in the hall behind them. Sinking swiftly along the column-lined wall, he reached the great door as they crossed the huge throne room, their torches driving back the shadows. They did not look back. In single file, their ostrich plumes nodding, their leopard-skin tunics contrasting curiously with the marble and arabesque metal of the ancient palace, they moved across the wide room and halted momentarily at the golden door to the left of the throne dais. Goluga's voice boomed eerily and hollowly in the great empty space, framed in sonorous phrases unintelligible to the lurking listener. Then the high priest thrust open the golden door and entered, bowing repeatedly from the waist. 
and behind him the torches sank and rose, showering flakes of flame. As the worshippers imitated their master, the gold door closed behind them, shutting out sound and sight, and Conan darted across the throne chamber and into the alcoves behind the throne. He made less sound than a wind blowing across the chamber. Tiny beams of light streamed through the apertures in the wall as he pried open the secret panel, gliding into the niche he peered through. Yurila sat upright on the dais, her arms folded, her head leaning back against the wall within a few inches of his eyes. The delicate perfume of her foamy hair was in his nostrils. He could not see her face, of course, but her attitude was as if she gazed tranquilly into some far gulf of space, over and beyond the shaven heads of the black giants who knelt before her. Conan grinned with appreciation. A little slut's an actress, he told himself. He knew she was shriveling with terror, but she showed no sign. In the uncertain flare of the torches, she looked exactly like the goddess he had seen lying on that same dais, if one could imagine that goddess imbued with vibrant life. Gorulga was booming forth some kind of a chant in an accent unfamiliar to Conan, and which was probably some invocation in the ancient tongue of Alkmenon, handed down from generation to generation to generation of high priests. It seemed interminable. Conan grew restless. The longer the thing lasted, the more terrific would be the strain on Muriela. If she snapped, he hitched his sword and dagger forward. He could not see the little trollop tortured and slain by black men. But the chant, deep, low-pitched and indescribably ominous, came to a conclusion at last, and a shouted acclaim from the acolytes marked its period. Lifting his head and raising his arms toward the silent form on the dais, Gorulga cried in the deep, rich resonance that was the natural attribute of the Kashani priest, O great goddess, dweller with the great one of darkness, let thy heart be melted, thy lips opened for the ears of thy slave, whose head is in the dust beneath thy feet. Speak, great goddess of the holy valley. Thou knowest the paths before us. The darkness that vexes us is as the light of the midday sun to thee. Shed the radiance of thy wisdom on the paths of thy servants. Tell us, O mouthpiece of the gods, what is their will concerning Thutmacri the Stygian? The high-piled burnished mass of hair that caught the torchlight in dull bronze gleams quivered slightly. A gusty sigh rose from the blacks, half in awe, half in fear. Muriela's voice came plainly to Conan's ears in the breathless silence, and it seemed cold, detached, impersonal, though he winced at the Corinthian accent. It is the will of the gods that the Stygian and his Shemitish dogs be driven from Keshen. She was repeating his exact words. They are thieves and traitors who plot to rob the gods. Let the teeth of Gwathlur be placed in the care of the general Conan. Let him lead the armies of Keshen, his beloved of the gods. There was a quiver in her voice as she ended, and Conan began to sweat, believing she was on the point of an hysterical collapse. But the blacks did not notice, any more than they identified the Corinthian accent, of which they knew nothing. They smote their palms softly together, and a murmur of wonder and awe rose from them. Karolga's eyes glittered fanatically in the torchlight. Yalea has spoken,' he cried in an exalted voice. "'It is the will of the gods.' Long ago, in the days of our ancestors, they were made taboo and hidden at the command of the gods, who wrenched them from the awful jaws of Gwalor the King of Darkness. In the birth of the world, at the command of the gods, the teeth of Gwalher were hidden. 
At their command they shall be brought forth again. O star-born goddess, give us your leave to go to the secret hiding place of the teeth to secure them for him whom the gods love. You have my leave to go, answered the false goddess, with an imperious gesture of dismissal that set Conan grinning again, and the priests backed out, ostrich plumes and torches rising and falling with the rhythm of their genuflections. The gold door closed, and with a moan, the goddess fell back limply on the dais. Conan, she whimpered faintly. Conan! He hissed through the apertures and turning, glided from the niche and closed the panel. A glimpse past the gem of the carven door showed him the torches receding across the great throne room, but he was at the same time aware of a radiance that did not emanate from the torches. He was startled, but the solution presented itself instantly. An early moon had risen, and its light slanted through the pierced dome, which by some curious workmanship intensified the light. The shining dome of Alcmenon was no fable then. Perhaps its interior was of the curious, whitely flaming crystal found only in the hills of the black countries. The light flooded the throne room and seeped into the chambers immediately adjoining. But as Conan made toward the door that led into the throne room, he was brought around suddenly by a noise that seemed to emanate from the passage that led off from the alcove. He crouched at the mouth, staring into it, remembering the clangor of the gong that had echoed from it to lure him into a snare. The light from the dome filtered only a little way into that narrow corridor and showed him only empty space, yet he could have sworn that he had heard the furtive pad of a foot somewhere down it. While he hesitated, he was electrified by a woman's strangled cry from behind him. Bounding through the door behind the throne, he saw an unexpected spectacle in the crystal light. The torches of the priests had vanished from the great hall outside, but one priest was still in the palace. Gwaranga, his wicked features were convulsed with fury, and he grasped the terrified Muriela by the throat, choking her efforts to scream and plead, shaking her brutally. Traitress, between his thick red lips, his voice hissed like a cobra. What game are you playing? Did not Zajaba tell you what to say? Aye, Thudmekri told me. Are you betraying your master, or is he betraying his friends through you, slut? I'll twist off your false head, but first I'll... A widening of his captive's lovely eyes as she stared over his shoulder warned the huge black. He released her and wheeled, just as Conan's sword lashed down. The impact of the stroke knocked him headlong backward to the marble floor, where he lay twitching, blood oozing from a ragged gash in his scalp. Conan started toward him to finish the job, for he knew that the black's sudden movement had caused the blade to strike flat, but Muriela threw her arms convulsively about him. I've done as you ordered, she gasped hysterically. Take me away! Oh, please take me away! We can't go yet, he grunted. I want to follow the priests and see where they get the jewels. There may be more loot hidden there, but you can go with me. Where's that gem you wore in your hair? It must have fallen out on the dais, she stammered, feeling for it. I was so frightened. When the priest left, I ran out to find you, and this big brute had stayed behind, and he grabbed me. Well, go get it while I dispose of this carcass, he commanded. Go on. That gem is worth a fortune itself. She hesitated, as if loath to return to that cryptic chamber. Then, 
As he grasped Gwaranga's girdle and dragged him into the alcove, she turned and entered the oracle room. Conan dumped the senseless black on the floor and lifted his sword. The Themerian had lived too long in the wild places of the world to have any illusions about mercy. The only safe enemy was a headless enemy. But before he could strike, a startling scream checked the lifted blade. It came from the oracle chamber. Conan! Conan! She's come back. The shriek ended in a gurgle and a scraping shuffle. With an oath, Conan dashed out of the alcove, across the throne dais and into the oracle chamber, almost before the sound had ceased. There he halted, glaring bewilderedly. To all appearances, Muriela lay placidly on the dais, eyes closed as if in slumber. What in thunder are you doing? he demanded acidly. Is this any time to be playing jokes? His voice trailed away. His gaze ran along the ivory thigh molded in the close-fitting silk skirt. That skirt should gape from girdle to hem, he knew, because it had been his own hand that tore it as he ruthlessly stripped the garment from the dancer's writhing body. But the skirt showed no rent. A single stride brought him to the dais, and he laid his hand on the ivory body, snatched it away as if it had encountered hot iron instead of the cold immobility of death. Crumb. He muttered, his eyes suddenly slits of balefire. It's not Muriela, it's Yeliah. He understood now that frantic scream that had burst from Muriela's lips when she entered the chamber. The goddess had returned. The body had been stripped by Zage Bar to furnish the accoutrements for the pretender. Yet now it was clad in silk and jewels as Conan had first seen it. A peculiar prickling made itself manifest among the sort hairs at the base of Conan's scalp. Eurela, he shouted suddenly. Eurela, where the devil are you? The walls threw back his voice mockingly. There was no entrance that he could see except the golden door, and none could have entered or departed through that without his knowledge. This much was indisputable. Yelaya had been replaced on the dais within the few minutes that had elapsed since Murela had first left the chamber to be seized by Gwaranga. His ears were still tingling with the echoes of Muriela's scream, yet the Corinthian girl had vanished as if into thin air. There was but one explanation if he rejected the darker speculation that suggested the supernatural. Somewhere in the chamber there was a secret door, and even as the thought crossed his mind he saw it. In what had seemed a curtain of solid marble, a thin perpendicular crack showed and in the crack hung a wisp of silk. In an instant, he was bending over it. That shred was from Muriela's torn skirt. The implication was unmistakable. It had been caught in the closing door and torn off as she was borne through the opening by whatever grim beings were her captors. The bit of clothing had prevented the door from fitting perfectly into its frame. Thrusting his dagger point into the crack, Conan exerted leverage with a corded forearm. The blade bent, but it was of unbreakable Akbitanan steel. The marble door opened. Conan's sword was lifted as he peered into the aperture beyond, but he saw no shape of menace. Light filtering into the oracle chamber revealed a short flight of steps cut out of marble. Pulling the door back to its fullest extent, he drove his dagger into a crack in the floor, propping it open. Then he went down the steps without hesitation. He saw nothing, heard nothing. A dozen steps down, the stair ended in a narrow corridor which ran straight away into gloom. He halted suddenly, posed like a statue at the foot of the stair,
staring at the paintings which frescoed the walls, half visible in the dim light which filtered down from above. The art was unmistakably Pelishti. He had seen frescoes of identical characteristics on the walls of Asgallon, but the scenes depicted had no connection with anything Pelishti except for one human figure, frequently recurrent, a lean, white-bearded old man whose racial characteristics were unmistakable. They seemed to represent various sections of the palace above. Several scenes showed a chamber he recognized as the oracle chamber with the figure of Yelea stretched upon the ivory dais and huge black men kneeling before it. And there behind the wall in the niche lurked the ancient Palishti. And there were other figures too, figures that moved through the deserted palace, did the bidding of the Palishti and dragged unnameable things out of the subterranean river. In the few seconds Conan stood frozen, hitherto unintelligible phrases in the parchment manuscript blazed in his brain with chilling clarity. The loose bits of the pattern clicked into place. The mystery of Bit Yakin was a mystery no longer, nor the riddle of Bit Yakin's servants. Conan turned and peered into the darkness, an icy finger crawling along his spine. Then he went along the corridor, cat-footed, and without hesitation, moving deeper and deeper into the darkness as he drew farther away from the stair. The air hung heavy with the odor he had scented in the court of the gong. Now in utter blackness, he heard a sound ahead of him, the shuffle of bare feet or the swish of loose garments against stone. He could not tell which, but an instant later his outstretched hand encountered a barrier which he identified as a massive door of carved metal. He pushed against it fruitlessly, and his sword point sought vainly for a crack. It fitted into the sill and jams as if moulded there. He exerted all his strength, his feet straining against the floor, the veins knotting in his temples. It was useless. A charge of elephants would scarcely have shaken that titanic portal. As he leaned there, he caught a sound on the other side that his ears instantly identified. It was the creak of rusty iron, like a lever scraping in its slot. Instinctively action followed recognition so spontaneously that sound, impulse and action were practically simultaneous. And as his prodigious bound carried him backward, there was the rush of a great bulk from above, and a thunderous crash filled the tunnel with deafening vibrations. Bits of flying splinters struck him. A huge block of stone, he knew from the sound, dropped on the spot he had just quitted. An instant slower thought or action, and it would have crushed him like an ant. Conan fell back. Somewhere on the other side of that metal door, Muriela was a captive if she still lived, but he could not pass that door, and if he remained in the tunnel, another block might fall, and he might not be so lucky. It would do the girl no good for him to be crushed into a purple pulp. He could not continue his search in that direction. He must get above ground and look for some other avenue of approach. He turned and hurried toward the stair, sighing as he emerged into comparative radiance. And as he set foot on the first step, the light was blotted out, and above him the marble door rushed shut with a resounding reverberation. Something like panic seized the Cimmerian then, trapped in that black tunnel, and he wheeled on the stair, lifting his sword and glaring murderously into the darkness behind him, expecting a rush of ghoulish assailants. But there was no sound or movement down the tunnel. Did the men beyond the door, if they were men, believe that he had been disposed of by the fall of the stone from the roof, which had undoubtedly been released by some sort of machinery? Then why had the door been shut above him? 
Abandoning speculation, Conan groped his way up the steps, his skin crawling in anticipation of a knife in his back at every stride, yearning to drown his semi-panic in a barbarous burst of bloodletting. He thrust against the door at the top and cursed, soulfully, to find that it did not give to his efforts. Then, as he lifted his sword with his right hand to hew at the marble, his groping left encountered a metal bolt that evidently slipped into place at the closing of the door. In an instant, he had drawn this bolt, and then the door gave to his shove. He bounded into the chamber like a slit-eyed, snarling incarnation of fury, ferociously desirous to come to grips with whatever enemy was hounding him. The dagger was gone from the floor. The chamber was empty, and so was the dais. Yelea had again vanished. By Kram, muttered the Sumerian, is she alive after all? He strode out into the throne room, baffled, and then, struck by a sudden thought, stepped behind the throne and peered into the alcove. There was blood on the smooth marble where he had cast down the senseless body of Gwaranga. The black man had vanished as completely as Yelea. Chapter 4 Baffled wrath confused the brain of Conan the Cimmerian. He knew no more how to go about searching for Murila than he had known how to go about searching for the teeth of Gwakla. Only one thought occurred to him, to follow the priests. Perhaps at the hiding place of the treasure, some clue would be revealed to him. It was a slim chance, but better than wandering about aimlessly. As he hurried through the great shadowy hall that led to the portico, he half expected the lurking shadows to come to life behind him with rending fangs and talons, but only the beat of his own rapid heart accompanied him into the moonlight that dappled the shimmering marble. At the foot of the wide steps, he cast about in the bright moonlight for some sight to show him the direction he must go, and he found it. Petals scattered on the sward told where an arm or garment had brushed against a blossom-laden branch. Grass had been pressed down under heavy feet. Conan, who had tracked wolves in his native hills, found no insurmountable difficulty in following the trail of the Kashani priests. It led away from the palace, through masses of exotic-scented shrubbery, where great pale blossoms spread their shimmering petals through verdant, tangled bushes that showered blooms at the touch. Until he came at last to a great mass of rock that jutted like a titan's castle out from the cliffs at a point closest to the palace, which, however, was almost hidden from view by vine-interlaced trees, Evidently that babbling priest in Kesha had been mistaken when he said the teeth were hidden in the palace. This trail had led him away from the place where Muriela had disappeared, but a belief was growing in Conan that each part of the valley was connected with that palace by subterranean passages. Crouching in the deep, velvet-black shadows of the bushes, he scrutinized the great jut of rock which stood out in bold relief in the moonlight, it was covered with strange, grotesque carvings depicting men and animals and half-bestial creatures that might have been gods or devils. The style of art differed so strikingly from that of the rest of the valley that Conan wondered if it did not represent a different era and race, and was itself a relic of an age lost and forgotten at whatever immeasurably distant date the people of Alcminen had found and entered the haunted valley. A great door stood open in the sheer curtain of the cliff, and a gigantic dragon's head was carved about it, so that the open door was like the dragon's gaping mouth. The door itself 
was of carven bronze and looked to weigh several tons. There was no lock that he could see, but a series of bolts showing along the edge of the massive portal as it stood open told him that there was some system of locking and unlocking, a system doubtless known only to the priests of Keshen. The trail showed that Garolga and his henchmen had gone through that door, but Conan hesitated. To wait until they emerged would probably mean to see the door locked in his face, and he might not be able to solve the mystery of its unlocking. On the other hand, if he followed them in, they might emerge and lock him in the cavern. Throwing caution to the winds, he glided through the great portal. Somewhere in the cavern were the priests, the teeth of Guahlor, and perhaps a clue to the fate of Muriela. Personal risks had never yet deterred him from any purpose. Moonlight illumined for a few yards, the wide tunnel in which he found himself. Somewhere ahead of him he saw a faint glow and heard the echo of a weird chanting. The priests were not so far ahead of him as he had thought. The tunnel debouched into a wide room before the moonlight played out, an empty cavern of no great dimensions, but with a lofty vaulted roof glowing with a phosphorescent encrustation, which, as Conan knew, was a common phenomenon in that part of the world. It made a ghostly half-light, in which he was able to see a bestial image squatting on a shrine, and the black mouths of six or seven tunnels leading off from the chamber. Down the widest of these, the one directly behind the squat image which looked toward the outer opening, he caught the gleam of torches wavering, whereas the phosphorescent glow was fixed and heard the chanting increase in volume. Down it he went recklessly, and was presently peering into a larger cavern than the one he had just left. There was no phosphorus here, but the light of the torches fell on a larger altar, and a more obscene and repulsive god, squatting toad-like upon it. Before this repugnant deity, Gorulga and his ten acolytes knelt and beat their heads upon the ground, while chanting monotonously, Conan realized why their progress had been so slow. Evidently approaching the secret crypt of the teeth was a complicated and elaborate ritual. He was fidgeting in nervous impatience before the chanting and bowing were over, but presently they rose and passed into the tunnel which opened behind the idol. Their torches bobbed away into the nighted vault, and he followed swiftly. Not much danger of being discovered. He glided along the shadows like a creature of the night, and the black priests were completely engrossed in their ceremonial mummery. Apparently, they had not even noticed the absence of Gwaranga. Emerging into a cavern of huge proportions, about whose upward curving walls gallery-like ledges marched in tiers, they began their worship anew before an altar which was larger and a god which was more disgusting than any encountered thus far. Conan crouched in the black mouth of the tunnel, staring at the walls reflecting the lurid glow of the torches. He saw a carven stone stair winding up from tier to tier of the galleries. The roof was lost in darkness. He started violently, and the chanting broke off as the kneeling blacks flung up their heads. An inhuman voice boomed out high above them. They froze on their knees. Their faces turned upward with a ghastly blue hue in the sudden glare of a weird light that burst blindingly up near the lofty roof and then burned with a throbbing glow. That glare lighted a gallery, and a cry went up from the high priest, echoed shudderingly by his acolytes. In the flash, there had been briefly disclosed to them a slim white figure standing upright in a sheen of silk and a glint of jewel-crusted gold. 
Then the blaze smouldered to a throbbing, pulsing luminosity in which nothing was distinct, and that slim shape was but a shimmering blur of ivory. Yaleya! screamed Garulga, his round features ashen. Why have you followed us? What is your pleasure? That weird, unhuman voice rolled down from the roof, re-echoing under that arching vault that magnified and altered it beyond recognition. Woe to the unbelievers! Woe to the false children of Kesha! Doom to them which deny their deity! A cry of horror went up from the priests. Garulga looked like shocked vulture in the glare of the torches. I do not understand, he stammered. We are faithful, in the chamber of the oracle, you told us. Do not heed what you heard in the chamber of the oracle, rolled that terrible voice, multiplied until it was as though a myriad voices thundered and muttered the same warning. Beware of false prophets and false gods. A demon in my guise spoke to you in the palace, giving false prophecy. Now hearken and obey, for only I am the true goddess, and I give you one chance to save yourselves from doom. Take the teeth of Guachlur from the crypt, where they were placed so long ago. Alcminon is no longer holy, because it has been desecrated by blasphemers. Give the teeth of Guahur into the hands of Thapnikri, the Stygian, to place in the sanctuary of Dagon and Derkato. Only this can save Keshen from the doom the demons of the night have plotted. Take the teeth of Guahlur and go. Return instantly to Kesha. They give the jewels to Thutmikri and seize the foreign devil Conan and flay him alive in the great square. There was no hesitation in obeying. Chattering with fear, the priest scrambled up and ran for the door that opened behind the bestial god. Goralga led the flight. They jammed briefly in the doorway, yelping as wildly waving torches touched squirming black bodies. They plunged through, and the patter of their speeding feet dwindled down the tunnel. Tonan did not follow. He was consumed with a furious desire to learn the truth of this fantastic affair. Was that indeed Yalea, as the cold sweat on the backs of his hands told him? Or was it that little hussy, Morila, turned traitress after all? If it was... Before the last torch had vanished down the black tunnel, he was bounding vengefully up the stone stair. The blue glow was dying down, but he could still make out that the ivory figure stood motionless on the gallery. His blood ran cold as he approached it, but he did not hesitate. He came on with his sword lifted, and towered like a threat of death over the inscrutable shape. Yalea, he snarled. Dead as she's been for a thousand years. Ha! From the dark mouth of a tunnel behind him, a dark form lunged, but the sudden deadly rush of unshod feet had reached the Sumerian's quick ears. He whirled like a cat and dodged the blow aimed murderously at his back. As the gleaming steel in the dark hand hissed past him, he struck back with the fury of a roused python, and the long straight blade impaled his assailant and stood out a foot and a half between his shoulders. So... Conan tore his sword free as the victim sagged to the floor, gasping and gurgling. The man writhed briefly and stiffened. In the dying light, Conan saw a black body and ebon countenance, hideous in the blue glare. He had killed Gwaranga. Conan turned from the corpse to the goddess. Thongs about her knees and breast held her upright against the stone pillar, and her thick hair fastened to the column held her head up. At a few yards' distance, these bonds were not visible in the uncertain light. 
He must have come to after I descended into the tunnel, muttered Conan. He must have suspected I was down there, so he pulled out the dagger. Conan stooped and wrenched the identical weapon from the stiffening fingers, glanced at it, and replaced it in his own girdle, and shut the door. Then he took Yelaya to befool his brother idiots. That was his shouting a while ago. You couldn't recognize his voice under this echoing roof, and that bursting blue flame. I thought it looked familiar. It's a trick of the Stygian priests. Thutmikri must have given some of it to Guarunga. The man could easily have reached this cavern ahead of his companions, evidently familiar with the plan of the caverns by hearsay or by maps, handed down in priestcraft. He had entered the cave after the others, carrying the goddess, followed a circuitous route through the tunnels and chambers, and ensconced himself and his burden on the balcony, while Gorulga and the other acolytes were engaged in their endless rituals. The blue glare had faded, but now Conan was aware of another glow, emanating from the mouth of one of the corridors that opened on the ledge. Somewhere down that corridor there was another field of phosphorus, for he recognized the faint steady radiance. The corridor led in the direction the priests had taken, and he decided to follow it, rather than descend into the darkness of the great cavern below. Doubtless it connected with another gallery in some other chamber, which might be the destination of the priests. He hurried down it, the illumination growing stronger as he advanced, until he could make out the floor and the walls of the tunnel, ahead of him, and below he could hear the priests chanting again. Abruptly, a doorway in the left-hand wall was limbed in the phosphorus glow, and to his ears came the sound of soft, hysterical sobbing. He wheeled and glared through the door. He was looking again into a chamber hewn out of solid rock, not a natural cavern like the others. The domed roof shone with the phosphorus light, and the walls were almost covered with arabesques of beaten gold. Near the farther wall on a granite throne, staring forever toward the arched doorway, sat the monstrous and obscene Petior, the god of the Palishti, wrought in brass with his exaggerated attributes, reflecting the grossness of his cult, and in his lap sprawled a limp white figure. Well, I'll be damned muttered Conan. He glanced suspiciously about the chamber, seeing no other entrance or evidence of occupation, and then advanced noiselessly and looked down at the girl whose slim shoulders shook with sobs of abject misery, her face sunk in her arms. From thick bands of gold on the idol's arms, slim gold chains ran to smaller bands on her wrists. He laid a hand on her naked shoulder, and she started convulsively, shrieked, and twisted her tear-stained face toward him. Conan, she made a spasmodic effort to go into the usual clinch, but the chains hindered her. He cut through the soft gold as close to her wrists as he could, grunting. You'll have to wear these bracelets until I can find a chisel or a file. Let go of me, damn it. You actresses are too damned emotional. What happened to you anyway? When I went back into the oracle chamber, she whimpered, I saw the goddess lying on the dais as I'd first seen her. I called out to you and started to run to the door. Then something grabbed me from behind. It clapped a hand over my mouth and carried me through a panel in the wall and down some steps and along a dark hall. I didn't see what it was that had hold of me until we passed through a big metal door and came into a tunnel whose roof was alight, like this chamber. Oh, I nearly fainted when I saw. They are not humans. They are grey, hairy devils that walk like men and speak a gibberish no human could understand. They stood there and seemed to be waiting, 
and once I thought I heard somebody trying the door. Then one of the things pulled a metal lever in the wall, and something crashed on the other side of the door. Then they carried me on and on through winding tunnels and up stone stairways into this chamber, where they chained me on the knees of this abominable idol, and then they went away. Oh, Conan, what are they? Servants of Bidyakin, he grunted. I found a manuscript that told me a number of things, and then stumbled upon some frescoes that told me the rest. Bidyakin was a Palishti who wandered into the valley with his servants after the people of Alkmenon had deserted it. He found the body of Princess Yelea and discovered that the priest returned from time to time to make offerings to her, for even then she was worshipped as a goddess. He made an oracle of her, and he was the voice of the oracle, speaking from a niche he cut in the wall behind the ivory dais. The priests never suspected, never saw him or his servants, for they always hid themselves when the men came. Bit Yakin lived and died here without ever being discovered by the priests. Crom knows how long he dwelt here, but it must have been for centuries. The wise men of the Palishti know how to increase the span of their lives for hundreds of years. I've seen some of them myself. Why he lived here alone and why he played the part of Oracle no ordinary human can guess, but I believe the Oracle part was to keep the city inviolate and sacred so he could remain undisturbed. He ate the food the priest brought as an offering to Yelea, and his servants ate other things. I've always known there was a subterranean river flowing away from the lake, where the people of the Puntish Highlands throw their dead. That river runs under this palace. They have ladders hung over the water where they can hang and fish for the corpses that come floating through. Bidyakin recorded everything on parchment and painted walls. But he died at last, and his servants mummified him, according to instructions he gave them before his death, and stuck him in a cave in the cliffs. The rest is easy to guess. His servants, who were even more nearly immortal than he, kept on dwelling here. But the next time a high priest came to consult the oracle, not having a master to restrain them, they tore him to pieces. So since then, until Garulga, nobody came to talk to the oracle. It's obvious they've been renewing the garments and ornaments of the goddess, as they'd seen Bit Yakin do. Doubtless there's a sealed chamber somewhere where the silks are kept from decay. They clothed the goddess and brought her back to the oracle room after Zargaiba had stolen her. And, oh, by the way, they took off Zargaiba's head and hung it up in a thicket. She shivered, yet at the same time breathed a sigh of relief. He'll never whip me again. Not this side of hell, agreed Conan. But come on! Korunga ruined my chances with his stolen goddess. I'm going to follow the priests and take my chance of stealing the loot from them after they get it, and you stay close to me. I can't spend all my time looking for you. But the servants of Bityakin, she whispered fearfully. We'll have to take our chance, he grunted. I don't know what's in their minds, but so far they haven't shown any disposition to come out and fight in the open. Come on. Taking her wrist, he led her out of the chamber and down the corridor. As they advanced, they heard the chanting of the priests, and mingling with the sound, the low, sullen rushing of waters. The light grew stronger above them, as they emerged on a high-pitched gallery of a great cavern, and looked down on a scene weird and fantastic. Above them gleamed the phosphorescent roof. A hundred feet below them stretched the smooth floor of the cavern. On the far side, this floor was cut by a deep, narrow stream brimming its rocky channel. 
Rushing out of impenetrable gloom, it swirled across the cavern and was lost again in darkness. The visible surface reflected the radiance above. The dark, seething waters glinted as if flecked with living jewels, frosty blue, lurid red, shimmering green, and ever-changing iridescence. Conan and his companions stood upon one of the gallery-like ledges that banded the curve of the lofty wall, and from this ledge a natural bridge of stone soared in a breathtaking arch over the vast gulf of the cavern to join a much smaller ledge on the opposite side, across the river. Ten feet below it another, broader arch spanned the cave. At either end a carved stair joined the extremities of these flying arches. Conan's gaze, following the curve of the arch that swept away from the ledge on which they stood, caught a glint of light that was not the lurid phosphorus of the cavern. On that small ledge opposite them, there was an opening in the cave wall through which stars were glinting. But his full attention was drawn to the scene beneath them. The priests had reached their destination. There, in the sweeping angle of the cavern wall, stood a stone altar, but there was no idol upon it. Whether there was one behind it, Conan could not ascertain, because some trick of the light or the sweep of the wall left the space behind the altar in total darkness. The priests had stuck their torches into holes in the stone floor, forming a semicircle of fire in front of the altar at a distance of several yards. Then the priests themselves formed a semicircle inside the crescent of torches, and Garulga, after lifting his arms aloft in invocation, bent to the altar and laid hands on it. It lifted and tilted backward on its hinder edge, like the lid of a chest, revealing a small crypt. Extending a long arm into the recess, Garulga brought up a small brass chest. Lowering the altar back into place, he set the chest on it and threw back the lid. To the eager watchers on the high gallery, it seemed as if the action had released a blaze of living fire which throbbed and quivered about the open chest. Conan's heart leapt and his hand caught at his hilt. The teeth of Guachlur at last, the treasure that would make its possessor the richest man in the world. His breath came fast between his clenched teeth. Then he was suddenly aware that a new element had entered into the light of the torches and of the phosphorescent roof, rendering both void. Darkness all around the altar, except for that glowing spot of evil radiance cast by the teeth of Gualur, and that grew and grew. The blacks froze into basaltic statues, their shadows streaming grotesquely and gigantically out behind them. The altar was laved in the glow now, and the astounded features of Gorolga stood out in sharp relief. Then the mysterious space behind the altar swam into the widening illumination, and slowly, with the crawling light, Figures became visible, like shapes growing out of the night and silence. At first they seemed like grey stone statues, those motionless shapes, hairy, man-like, yet hideously human. But their eyes were alive, cold sparks of grey, icy fire. And as the weird glow lit their bestial countenances, Gorulga screamed and fell backward, throwing up his long arms in a gesture of frenzied horror but a longer arm shot across the altar and a misshapen hand locked on his throat. Screaming and fighting, the high priest was dragged back across the altar. A hammer-like fist smashed down and Garulga's cries were stilled. Limp and broken he sagged across the altar, his brains oozing from his crushed skull. And then the servants of Bityakin surged like a bursting flood from hell on the black priests who stood like horror-blasted images. 
Then there was slaughter, grim and appalling. Conan saw black bodies tossed like chaff in the inhuman hands of the slayers, against whose horrible strength and agility the daggers and swords of the priests were ineffective. He saw men lifted bodily and their heads cracked open against the stone altar. He saw a flaming torch, grasped in a monstrous hand, thrust inexorably down the gullet of an agonized wretch who writhed in vain against the arms that pinioned him. He saw a man torn in two pieces, as one might tear a chicken, and the bloody fragments hurled clear across the cavern. The massacre was as short and devastating as the rush of a hurricane. In a burst of red abysmal ferocity, it was over, except for one wretch who fled screaming back the way the priests had come, pursued by a swarm of blood-dabbled shapes of horror which reached out their red-smeared hands for him. Fugitive and pursuers vanished down the black tunnel, and the screams of the human came back dwindling and confused by the distance. Muriela was on her knees, clutching Conan's legs, her face pressed against his knee and her eyes tightly shut. She was a quaking, quivering mould of abject terror, but Conan was galvanized. A quick glance across at the aperture where the stars shone, a glance down at the chest that still blazed open on the blood-smeared altar, and he saw and seized the desperate gamble. I'm going after that chest, he grated. Stay here. Oh, Mitra, no. In an agony of fright, she fell to the floor and caught at his sandals. Don't, don't, don't leave me. Lie still and keep your mouth shut, he snapped, disengaging himself from her frantic clasp. He disregarded the torturous stare. He dropped from ledge to ledge with reckless haste. There was no sign of the monsters as his feet hit the floor. A few of the torches still flared in their sockets. The phosphorescent glow throbbed and quivered, and the river flowed with an almost articulate muttering, scintillant with undreamed radiances. The glow that had heralded the appearance of the servants had vanished with them. Only the light of the jewels in the brass chest shimmered and quivered. He snatched the chest, noting its contents in one lustful glance. Strange, curiously shapen stones that burned with an icy, non-terrestrial fire. He slammed the lid, thrust the chest under his arm, and ran back up the steps. He had no desire to encounter the hellish servants of Bit Yakin. His glimpse of them in action had dispelled any illusion concerning their fighting ability. Why they had waited so long before striking at the invaders he was unable to say. What human could guess the motives or thoughts of these monstrosities? That they were possessed of craft and intelligence equal to humanity had been demonstrated, and there on the cavern floor lay crimson proof of their bestial ferocity. The Corinthian girl still cowered on the gallery where he had left her. He caught her wrist and yanked her to her feet, grunting, I guess it's time to go. Too bemused with terror to be fully aware of what was going on, the girl suffered herself to be led across the dizzy span. It was not until they were poised over the rushing water that she looked down, voiced a startled yelp, and would have fallen but for Conan's massive arm about her. Growling an objurgation in her ear, he snatched her up under his free arm and swept her, in a flutter of limply waving arms and legs, across the arch and into the aperture that opened at the other end. Without bothering to set her on her feet, he hurried through the short tunnel into which this aperture opened. An instant later they emerged upon a narrow ledge on the outer side of the cliffs that circled the valley. Less than a hundred feet below them, the jungle waved in the starlight. Looking down, 
Conan vented a gusty sigh of relief. He believed he could negotiate the descent, even though burdened with the jewels and the girl, although he doubted if even he, unburdened, could have ascended at that spot. He set the chest, still smeared with Garolga's blood and clotted with his brains, on the ledge, and was about to remove his girdle in order to tie the box to his back, when he was galvanized by a sound behind him, a sound sinister and unmistakable. Stay here, he snapped at the bewildered Corinthian girl. Don't move, and drawing his sword, he glided into the tunnel, glaring back into the cavern. Halfway across the upper span, he saw a grey, deformed shape. One of the servants of Bityakin was on his trail. There was no doubt that the brute had seen them and was following them. Conan did not hesitate. It might be easier to defend the mouth of the tunnel, but this fight must be finished quickly before the other servants could return. He ran out on the span, straight toward the oncoming monster. It was no ape, neither was it a man. It was some shambling horror spawned in the mysterious nameless jungles of the south, where strange life teemed in the reeking rot, without the dominance of man, and drums thundered in temples that had never known the tread of a human foot. Now the ancient Palishti had gained lordship over them, and with it, eternal exile from humanity was a foul riddle about which Conan did not care to speculate, even if he had had opportunity. Man and monster, they met at the highest arch of the span, where, a hundred feet below, rushed the furious black water. As the monstrous shape with its leprous grey body and the features of a carven, unhuman idol loomed over him, Conan struck as a wounded tiger strikes, with every ounce of the view and fury behind the blow. That stroke would have sheared a human body asunder, but the bones of the servant of Bityakin were like tempered steel. Yet even tempered steel could not wholly have withstood that furious stroke. Ribs and shoulder bone parted and blood spouted from the great gash. There was no time for a second stroke. Before the Cimmerian could lift his blade again or spring clear, the sweep of a giant arm knocked him from the span as a fly is flicked from a wall. As he plunged downward, the rush of the river was like a knell in his ears, but his twisting body fell halfway across the lower arch. He wavered there precariously for one blood-chilling instant. Then his clutching fingers hooked over the farther edge, and he scrambled to safety, his sword still in his other hand. As he sprang up, he saw the monster, spurting blood hideously, rush toward the cliff end of the bridge, obviously intending to descend the stair that connected the arches and renew the feud. At the very ledge the brute paused in mid-flight, and Conan saw it too, Burela, with the jewel chest under her arm, stood staring wilding in the mouth of the tunnel. With a triumphant bellow, the monster scooped her up under one arm, snatched the jewel chest with the other hand as she dropped it, and turning, lumbered back across the bridge. Conan cursed with passion and ran for the other side also. He doubted if he could climb the stair to the higher arch in time to catch the brute before it could plunge into the labyrinths of tunnels on the other side. But the monster was slowing, like clockwork running down. Blood gushed from that terrible gash in his breast, and he lurched drunkenly from side to side. Suddenly he stumbled, reeled and toppled sidewise, pitched headlong from the arch, and hurtled downward. Girl and jewel chest fell from his nerveless hands, and Murila's scream rang terribly above the snarl of the water below. Conan was almost under the spot from which the creature had fallen. 
The monster struck the lower arch glancingly and shot off, but the writhing figure of the girl struck and clung, and the chest hit the edge of the span near her. One falling object struck on one side of Conan and one on the other. Either was within arm's length. For the fraction of a split second, the chest teetered on the edge of the bridge, and Muriela clung by one arm, her face turned desperately toward Conan, her eyes dilated with the fear of death, and her lips parted in a haunting cry of despair. Conan did not hesitate, nor did he even glance toward the chest that held the wealth of an epoch. With a quickness that would have shamed the spring of a hungry jaguar, he swooped, grasped the girl's arm just as her fingers slipped from the smooth stone, and snatched her up on the span with one explosive heave. The chest toppled on over and struck the water ninety feet below, where the body of the servant of Bityakin had already vanished. A splash, a jetting flash of foam, marked where the teeth of Gwalor disappeared forever from the sight of man. Conan scarcely wasted a downward glance. He darted across the span and ran up the cliff stair like a cat, carrying the limp girl as if she had been an infant. A hideous ululation caused him to glance over his shoulder as he reached the higher arch to see the other servants streaming back into the cavern below, blood dripping from their bared fangs. They raced up the stair that wound up from tier to tier, roaring vengefully. But he slung the girl unceremoniously over his shoulder, dashed through the tunnel and went down the cliffs like an ape himself, dropping and springing from hold to hold with breakneck recklessness. When the fierce countenances looked over the ledge of the aperture, it was to see the Cimmerian and the girl disappearing into the forest that surrounded the cliffs. Well, said Conan, setting the girl on her feet within the sheltering screen of branches, we can take our time now. I don't think those brutes will follow us outside the valley. Anyway, I've got a horse tied at a waterhole close by if the lions haven't eaten him. Crumbs, devils, what are you crying about now? She covered her tear-stained face with her hands, and her slim shoulders shook with sobs. I lost the jewels for you, she wailed miserably. It was my fault. If I'd obeyed you and stayed out on the ledge, that brute would never have seen me. You should have caught the gems and let me drown. Yes, I suppose I should, he agreed. But forget it. Never worry about what's past. And stop crying, will you? That's better. Come on. You mean you're going to keep me? Take me with you? She asked, hopefully. What else do you suppose I'd do with you? He ran an approving glance over her figure and grinned at the torn skirt, which revealed a generous expanse of tempting ivory-tinted curves. I can use an actress like you. There's no use going back to Kesha. There's nothing in Kesha now that I want. We'll go to Punt. The people of Punt worship an ivory woman, and they wash gold out of the rivers in wicker baskets. I'll tell them that Keshen is intriguing with Thutmekri to enslave them, which is true, and that the guards have sent me to protect them, for about a houseful of gold. If I can manage to smuggle you into their temple to exchange places with their ivory goddess, we'll skin them out of their jaw teeth before we get through with them. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 